In this episode of Paid by the Word, Mike interviews Phoebe Young, an associate professor of history at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Professor Young focuses on the cultural and environmental history of the modern United States and the American West. Here's a snippet of their conversation. In looking at that connection, I think it really does go back to that sense of claiming space, of being visible, of being provocative, right? That to, to, it's, it certainly can be provocative with hundreds of thousands of people at a march, but camping in these spaces is another way to gain a sense of visibility and to communicate a sense of staying power. Like, we're not going away, right, until you um, do something. Well, hello there, and welcome to Paid by the Word, a podcast featuring conversations with professional writers and editors. If you are curious about what goes on in the minds of people who write and edit for a living, this podcast is for you. Thanks, Zoe. Professor Phoebe S.K. Young teaches undergraduate and graduate students at the University of Colorado in Boulder. She is the recipient of the 2016 Boulder Faculty Assembly Award for Distinction in Teaching and Pedagogy. She is also the author of two books, California Vieja, Culture and Memory in a Modern American Place, and Camping Grounds, Public Nature in America from the Civil War to the Occupy Movement. In our conversation, Phoebe spoke about why she chose to write about camping and what she learned over the course of her research. Hi, Phoebe. You know, writers love turning the ordinary activities of life into metaphors and symbols. But in your book, you make a strong case for looking at camping as more than just pitching a tent and sleeping in the woods. Why is there more to camping than meets the eye? So interesting. Um, And yes, I I don't really see camping as a metaphor so much, but indeed this kind of very ordinary thing um, that can tell us uh, a great deal. So, you know, I'm a historian of of culture um, and of the environment. And so I like taking things that we take for granted, things that seem natural um, and kind of turning over that rock to see, well, how how did they become that way, right? How did they, what's strange about them to sort of see them in a, in a different way than we're used to? Um, so for camping, the story is really in part about how recreational camping became the kind of camping we tend to think about, the automatic one when the uh, image that comes to mind when you say camping. Um, and why is it, for example, that we expect the federal government to provide us a picnic table, a driveway, and a fire ring? Um, because not only has none of that always been the case, um, but that camping also has these multiple dimensions, right? If we think about recreational camping and the way it relates to camping for functional reasons, so in the past, just what you did in travel if you were between towns and had no indoor lodging, or uh, the the crisis of the unsheltered today, um, camps for political expression, right, from Civil War veterans to the Occupy movement to pipeline protests, um, that all of these dimensions continue to be intertwined, um, but even though we understand them as these very separate categories. And so that's, that's kind of what I found when I turned over that rock um, was a much more complex history. Uh, if you had to kind of top line the differences between recreational and non-recreational camping, what, what would they be? Well, the... 
I guess the it's about intent, right? Because the actual practice and the materials that are often used are, are kind of indistinguishable. Not always, but uh, certainly the, the kinds of tents that people use uh, and the activities that you do when you're camping um, might look very similar, but it's, it's why you're doing it, what you seek to get out of that experience, or if it's an experience, a, a choice of last resort, right? Or if it's a way to kind of get your voice across. So it, it has to do a lot with who is doing that kind of camping and what they're trying to sort of accomplish um, with that particular kind of camping. And it's important to note that, you know, that these divides uh, are something that have evolved over the years and that in the early 19th century, it didn't really exist, right? It was just, again, what you did um, in uh, that process. But trying to define that difference is, is a messy um, kind of question. Um, it's sort of what I started the book with is congressional hearings over Occupy, where con Congress people ask, what is camping? Why are you allowed to camp in protest of fun? Um, and those people who are camping for fun couldn't camp right in the center of Washington, D.C. Um, and that sort of trying to, to sort of tease out those definitions is, is, is hard to have a simple answer. So from Congress to the Supreme Court, um, these are questions that have been debated over the years. Wow, that's fascinating. Uh, so uh, tell us a little bit about how your book came about uh, and what led you to do this deeper dive. So I grew up camping, but that wasn't really the, the impetus for the book. Um, uh, as I said before, you know, liking to sort of unpack ordinary things, it, it came as something that was kind of curious, that question about kind of why, why the fire ring and that we expect this. But what really gave me the hint that there was something more there um, was, um, this was quite a number of years ago, a good friend of mine had never been camping. She went camping at age 30 uh, and loved it, had a great experience in Zion National Park. And she went back to her dad and said, dad, why did we never camp when I was little? Um, and his answer was um, that that's what poor people did and that he had done that plenty when he was struggling uh, as a young man trying to make his way in the world. And now that they had made it, when he was going on vacation, there was no way he was sleeping on the ground. Um, and that was this kind of first big hint that this was not something that was universal or natural, that there was a kind of different paths of access, different understandings and ways of relating to nature, um, that this was a very specific kind of activity and, and must have a specific kind um, of history to it. Um, and then the other piece of that, that was kind of the impetus for the recreational part, but that how I got the clue to also think more broadly about other forms of camping um, actually were real-time events as sort of watching my questions play out in the media um, during the Great Recession and during the Occupy Wall Street movement, where camping kind of burst onto the scenes in these different forms and, and began to shift how I thought about recreational camping, not just as this kind of um, general category, but one that uh, had crossover and kind of fraught relations with these other forms of camping. Wow, that's great. I really appreciate how you unpack this. Um, could you talk about how camping taps into some of our most basic beliefs? And, and from your perspective, what does camping reveal to us about North American culture? Yeah, so I think... I, I feel that in the in the book I make a pretty strong case that camping speaks to us, I think, in, in ways that other forms of recreation don't. Um, so Skiing is a wonderful thing. I love to ski. Cycling, another kind of outdoor recreation, which I hate. Um, but And there's a lot you can learn about studying them uh, and that you can enjoy about doing them, uh, about uh, sort of outdoor recreation and, and what we get out of it. Um, but whether you love or hate to camp, 
for fun. Um, the fact that it has these multiple dimensions, right? Recreational, functional, political. Um, and I think at the core really is that it involves this act of claiming public ground, right? That we are actually acting this out in public space um, means that for me, what I see is it serves as a kind of bellwether, right? For who we are, how we relate to nature, to the nation and to each other. Um, in short, I, I think it relates to kind of our fundamental social contract um, that's baked into the founding of the United States, right? Going back to Locke and Jefferson about mixing your labor with the land to create kind of property ownership to be a good citizen, right? But as time went on, that became harder and harder to do. And, and as people moved to cities and worked in industry, um, they lost a lot of that. And, and camping in a way recreates that connection with the land. But now we mix our leisure with the land um, to participate in the nation. And that this infrastructure has grown up around uh, the activity of camping. So whether it's in the national parks or state parks or national forests, that this kind of expectation that it's, it's not just a popular activity, but it's something that the government is in the business of supporting and fostering and encouraging us to do. Um, I'll, I'll end that just with a sense of the designer of the Loop Campground, if you, any campground you've ever been to that's, you know, Site 12 on Loop A was uh, goes its origins to this fellow named Emilio Meineke in the 1930s who designed it and who argued that campers are guests of the nation and that they're entitled to enjoy claiming um, what he said was one 130 millionth part ownership. 130 million being the population of the U.S. at the time. And so he likened camping to this act of claiming a, a kind of ownership uh, in the nation. Wow, that's amazing. And it, of course, it's making me think a little bit of the differences between North American culture and the Roman Empire, which for some reason is <laughs> just on my mind. Um, I'll, I'll right. Well, you. I mean, yeah. so camping as an activity, right, is something that, uh, as one person once told me after hearing a description of my book, well, you know, isn't that something that has, you know, uh, humans have done forever? Like, mm -hmm. yes, it's true, right? Camping, sleeping outside, um, you know, uh, uh, is is uh, clearly in the origins uh, of our earliest prehistory. Um, so, exactly, trying to figure out what it means in American culture and in kind of the U.S. history was my task, not trying to deal with the, the much broader sweep um, <laughs> yeah. of camping. <laughs> Let's talk about one of the genuinely unpleasant aspects of the story, which is the efforts of the National Park Service to keep Black people from using the parks. Uh, that was shameful and inexcusable uh, and awful. Talk to us about how and why that happened. Yeah, absolutely. Then um, this was a, a, an aspect that I was definitely focused on throughout the book and, and is quite troubling um, to read about and, and think about when, you know, we revere our national parks in so many ways. So part of this answer, you know, of course, is uh, just if we think about in these eras that I look at in the late 19th and early 20th century, right, structural racism is is uh, virulent going on, but it's there's more to it than that in, in terms of how it gets specifically applied uh, in the parks. So when recreational camping started to become popular in the late 19th century, primarily by elite, uh, white, uh, urban Americans, um, that part of what they were doing was trying to differentiate their 
their activity from what they saw particularly at the time uh, as a tramp problem. So uh, in the late 19th century, right, the economy is uh, in this boom bust cycle and you have a lot of mobile laborers um, that are causing uh, all kinds of anxiety among the American public about what they represented. And so recreational campers are trying to, to show that they're respectable, right? That they are, they're doing this the right way. And so it kind of in the establishment of recreational camping becomes this, well, we have to differentiate ourselves from these kind of more unsavory campers. Um, and so African-Americans get kind of caught up in that effort um, by uh, whites to, uh, white recreational campers to kind of differentiate themselves and, and come to be seen as on that sort of unsavory part of, of the line. And you can see this show up in a number of places. So John Muir, for example, one of the, you know, uh, people that we most associate with popularizing wilderness travel and appreciation of nature was extremely skeptical of those who camped um, for functional reasons or who had uh, kind of more interdependent relationships with the land. So in his early writings, you can see him talking about um, freed people. So recently enslaved people in the, in the wake of the Civil War, he traveled around the South and he was very nervous about what they were doing. And they weren't out sleeping outside because uh, they were trying to appreciate nature, but that they were um, doing so because they had to. And the same goes for how he viewed indigenous people um, in the Sierras, that they were kind of uh, living off the land. And, and he saw that as kind of a lower level, as not civilized uh, as much as what he was doing. And so those kinds of deep held assumptions um, then get kind of pushed into uh, the sort of super park superintendents who, when they're trying to figure out, you know, who's going to come and visit the parks, it's harder for them to imagine that African-Americans could become kind of modern tourists, right? Uh, uh, money spending uh, campers in, in these parks. Um, and they worry that white, both white employees in the parks and other white uh, visitors to the parks will see them as this kind of unwelcome presence on the landscape. And so that led to a kind of a widespread, if unofficial campaign of dissuasion, of not advertising, not doing any kind of outreach to the African-American communities about visiting the parks, which in other dimensions in the 1920s, they were advertising the parks hand over fist. It was a big campaign in the 20s and 30s to try to get more Americans to visit the parks, um, but specifically um, excluding African-Americans. God, that is so uh, depressing and disheartening. Uh, and, uh, you know, I didn't, if you had told me that, that we would be joining the National Park Service in a sentence with Jim Crow, I would have said, what? Uh, so it, it's just, and it's amazing how, uh, you know, all of our, our culture can take uh, racism and manifest it in, in so many different ways. Uh, we're endlessly creative. So, I mean, one of the interesting, that, that was kind of Soto Voce, right? That whole campaign. But when it actually becomes uh, in Southern parks that were established late, so um, Shenandoah Park, for example, in the mm -hmm. 30s, they actually do establish an official color line that are segregated. Oh facilities. Um, and it, it comes in the kind of late 1930s. Um, and it was, you know, partly because in deference, right? So Franklin Roosevelt, right, not wanting to ruffle feathers among white Southern Democrats, um, you know, they kind of bow to local preference in having segregated park, uh, areas in the Southern parks. And there had not been national parks in the Southern areas. But that actually provoked a lot of African-American activists um, to push back and to say, all right, you cannot 
not do we do not want to see segregation in federal spaces right these aren't mm -hmm. state spaces um, and so actually what you see in the late 30s and early 40s is a is a real push by the members of FDR's black cabinet and others to get it overturned and it, it, it actually does get overturned earlier than a lot of other spaces um, so in the early 1940s those are desegregated before the army um, you know before schools all of that um, in in so it's one of the few integrated spaces in the 1940s um, and 50s in the south so there is there's it's it, absolutely it's depressing and frustrating to see it how how deeply woven uh, racism is through all of these spaces and policies but then we can also point to to areas where um, the kind of pushback allows um, a the advancement of those kinds of, of different ideas, right, of, of moving towards um, a more inclusive system. So, uh, Phoebe, where do social movements like Occupy Wall Street fit into the larger narrative of camping in America? So one of the interesting things about Occupy that I remember from from watching it play out, I was not a participant, but but a, a close observer, um, was so much of the news media reacted to it as as if it was never before seen. This was unprecedented. What are they doing right in this space? Why would they choose um, to protest in this way? Um, a few like pointed at a, a, some earlier precedents, right, of the sort of looking back um, that, oh, yes, there were some earlier moments, the bonus army in the Great Depression. Right of World War One veterans who camped um, on the Federal Mall uh, for uh, to advocate for getting their bonus um, early during the Great Depression, um, and then we can trace it even further back um, to Coxey's Army in the late 19th century, which are uh, uh, sort of unemployed who marched on Washington really for the first time uh, to advocate for more infrastructure bills uh, and to sort of unemployment relief, um, and even back to Civil War veterans. Uh, who didn't use it so much as protest, but as a form of lobbying um, to lobby the federal government uh, for uh, veterans' pensions. So they too took over different cities, uh, including uh, uh, the in Washington D.C., and camped to remind the nation of their service. Right, that they had been the boys that won the war, right, in the Union Army, and that that they uh, deserved to be taken care of, right, in their in their old age. Um, and so camping has been in through all of those eras, and very much in areas that you know didn't get picked up on as much during Occupy in the 1960s, where we saw the Poor People's Campaign, right, uh, out of Martin Luther. King's um, Southern Christian Leadership Conference organized right in the wake of, of um, his assassination in 1968, um, camped in D.C. There were Vietnam veterans against the war in Campton, D.C. Um, there are, you know, a whole long history of this. And, and I think in looking at that connection, I think it really does go back to that sense of claiming space, of being visible, of being provocative, right? That to, to it's, it certainly can be provocative with hundreds of thousands of people at a march but camping in these spaces is another way to gain a sense of visibility and to communicate a sense of staying power. Like we're not going away, right? Until you uh, do something. And most of the time they, they went away. These are tents after all, they're designed to be temporary. Um, but in any case, I think there is just this, this longer tradition of using camping as a kind of overt form of political expression. Um, now, I will say the other connection to recreational camping 
is that recreational camping isn't without its politics either, right? It's not overt, but just as we were talking about in terms of race, it's it's a certain kind of argument about how we are supposed to be as citizens, right? We are supposed to um, find time to recreate, uh, to spend, you know, be consumers in this space uh, and into in, enjoy our uh, public spaces. And that's a, just a different way of, of kind of uh, performing your citizenship than Occupy, but they're not unrelated. Uh, tell us about your career path and um, what attracted you to the field of history. Yeah, so I mean, when I was uh, in in high school and, and college, uh, I I very much wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to argue course cases before the Supreme Court. It was inspired in in, in that way, um, so much so that I became a paralegal um, in order to sort of you know help uh, pay college expenses, um, but also feel like you know I could be part of the exciting world of law, um, which turned out to be not exciting at all. Uh, in sort of realizing that most of law um, was very much in details of contracts, um, and it's important to do, but it was sort of not you know I wanted to be making arguments from evidence. That that's kind of what had attracted to me, not negotiating contracts. Um, so uh, I was had been studying history because it was it seemed like a good uh, fit with law, and so I kind of realized, oh, history is a way you can also make arguments with evidence. I like to write, but I cannot write fiction. I think fiction is so difficult. I. I be completely intimidated on try. So it's 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 very intimidating to start from scratch uh, in in that way. And and I like to tell stories. The the book has lots of stories as well as argument. But it uh, that I can tell those stories from you know that I have the raw materials for them, right? And I get to sort of shape them and mold them and and um, kind of draw conclusions and insights from them. Uh, but that those this, it's about uncovering those stories. And so, yeah, I think there is a connection with with journalism in that way. I'm, I'm not a very concise writer, so that's why I couldn't really go into journalism either. <laughs> <laughs> I tend to write uh, uh, quite uh, quite a lot. Um, and the, the first couple of drafts of this book were much longer than, they, than it is um, it came out to be. Um, but in any case, so that's that's kind of how I decided to go to graduate school in, in history. And, and it, it sort of continued to just feel super fortunate that I had really found what I was interested in doing, I work at the intersection of several fascinating fields in environmental history and cultural history, which were relatively new um, when I was in graduate school in, in the 1990s. Um, and then also to teach, I, I didn't really go into uh, being a professor in order to teach, but I love teaching. Um, and I, I love sort of sitting right at the edge of, of both you know, sharing your research with your students and being inspired by your students to ask new questions. Um, and it's, it's uh, in that way, it's kind of a dream job. Phoebe, what's your next project? Uh, do you have another book in the works? Yeah, a short one, maybe. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, um, seriously speaking, though, yeah, I have, you know, this project took me a long time. Uh, it was a long time coming. And, and the last year and a half uh, uh, for me as uh, with everybody, it's, you know, oh. a lot of challenging um, mm. things. I haven't made as much progress in, in thinking about what I want to do next um, as I might have liked. But, but there's definitely some clues, I think, that are in the epilogue of the book uh, that kind of grew out of this project about, for example, um, this idea that has sort of gained in strength 
uh, lately that we as a nation are suffering from nature deficit disorder mm -hmm. and that mental health is uh, important you know, for our mental health. It's important to spend time outside um, and that there is a, a kind of nature cure um, that you you can uh, tap into. Um, I think some of that is is what's driving a tremendous popularity in outdoor recreation during the pandemic. Right. It was, you know, it's a, it was mm -hmm. an became an essential activity uh, in, in these ways. And so I, I kind of want to dig into that and the same sense um, as with camping is that, that it's maybe it's not as natural as we think it is um, or as universal that not everybody may feel the same kind of relaxation or grounding when they go in the outdoors if they don't feel welcome there right if they feel surveilled right, right. right. and so that to assume that there is a nature cure uh, that is available equally uh, and has equal benefits for everybody, I, mm. I think is kind of problematic. And so I'm interested in kind of digging into the history of, of how, where that came from and what the implications of, of those beliefs are. Not to discourage people from going outdoors. If it works for you, mm. it works for me. Um, uh, uh, so absolutely, that's wonderful. But to, you know, as you say, like, show how things are not as simple as they often seem mm -hmm. in the kind of headline version of these. Um, so that's, that's kind of where my research interests are going. Um, yeah. I also am, am very much engaged in, in thinking about how we can work with our students better and improve our kind of educational system uh, and getting students engaged, not only in research, but in their, in the community. So for example, over the past year at CU Boulder, I, uh, have been working with the city of Boulder and engaging some of our undergraduate students in helping to think about our local parks and who they're named after. Um, so the city of Boulder approached us in thinking about kind of, uh, you know, social justice issues and who are our parks named after? Can you go find, find out that history and then help us develop a strategy to have a more inclusive naming um, uh, practice that uh, will better reflect our whole community. Um, and so, you know, part of that is right up my alley and thinking about nature and culture. Um, and part of that is about getting students to go out into the community here in Boulder and, and visit the parks and, and sort of think about what the history is and, and, and sort of dig into the archives to figure mm -hmm. out who those people are. And so those are the kinds of projects that I think beyond a book um, that I am really excited about um, doing in the future. I love that idea of uh, of really researching the uh, the naming or using that as a you know as your uh, MacGuffin to get people interested. Mm -hmm. That's that's fascinating, and of course, and very uh, it, it's timely and it's also relevant because uh, some people deserve to have na parks named after them and others don't. Uh, <laughs> and who are we to judge? Uh, but let the students turn the students loose on that. That's a, what a great what a great project. Uh, that's fantastic. Yeah. I think it worked really well. They were particularly in such a difficult year um, in, in, mm. in and out of the classroom that they could, they, this is something they could do. They could go to a park um, and yeah. they could do research in, in online sources to, to think about that. And I think they, they really felt connected um, uh, to uh, something, to the city, to the community, to a project, um, to the concerns that many of them have and came to the school year with mm -hmm. after you know the summer of 2020 um, and able to actually do work in a classroom for a, a kind of broader public uh, objective, right? That this is helping, yeah. you know, the real-time uh, uh, support for the community itself. It was uh, something I'm, I'm really hoping I could replicate um, in future years. That was my conversation with Phoebe Young, author of Camping Grounds, Public Nature in America from the Civil War to the Occupy Movement. I found it fascinating how she described those deep connections between camping and our history as Americans, and how she made the case 
that camping is not as simple a phenomenon as it appears. That wraps up another episode of Paid by the Word, a podcast featuring conversations with writers, editors, and media professionals. We are grateful for your attention and we wish you all the very best. Stay safe and be well. Bye-bye.